From Ag Expert, it's the FCC Knowledge Podcast, a show that features real Canadian producers, real stories, and real good conversations about the business of farming. I'm your host, Marty Seymour. When I was looking to purchase a business, I wanted it to have certain criteria, something that I could feel good about working in every day. And I wanted flexibility in my personal life. And I know a lot of people kind of scoff and laugh at that because they're saying, you know, well, you're, you're in farming, it's very labor intensive. And it is, but you don't mind it so much when you're doing it for yourself. Today on the show, we're taking a deep dive into the apple industry with maritime apple grower, Kenneth Carrier. Ken is the owner of two apple orchards, but he's actually only been in the business for five years. He's got a long pedigree, though, in food retail. Ken was the chief operating officer of Wong Wing Foods, a former division of McCain's. So you can imagine a guy like this, super strong on marketing and really deep on financial management. So how do you find his way into buying and running an apple orchard? What lessons does this former guy who spent time in big food retail bring to agriculture? You'll have to stick around to find out. Welcome to the FCC Knowledge Podcast. Today on the show, we got Ken Carrier from New Brunswick. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thank you. Nice to be here. All right, Ken, we uh, typically, uh, I guess, like to start off this show by helping the rest of Canada understand where you're at. So where's home or where do you get your mail? Uh, we are actually on the east coast of the country. I live in Moncton, New Brunswick, which is sort of on the uh, the southeastern edge of the province. Okay, so now for me coming from the prairies, <laughs> I love to know what the price of land is everywhere. So what's the price of land out in Moncton? Land value in New Brunswick is actually probably pretty economical when you compare it to other parts of the country. So you can probably get raw land for anywhere between three to $5,000 an acre. Some of the farmers in, say, northern New Brunswick or in the Florenceville area where McCain would be a big player there might pay double that or two and a half times that. So seven, $8,000 an acre. There's quite a large variant in the pricing, but uh, I'd say compared to other parts of the country, it's pretty economical. So if if you were talking about high-end potato land, seven, eight grand, I got to think that apple land is at even a bigger premium. Like, do we get into that fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 an acre? Well, it's not necessarily the land that's your big expense in terms of setting up the orchard. The land is obviously part of it, but if you buy an acre of land for, say, $3,000, there's a bunch of work that needs to happen to set up your orchard. So we always recommend that you drain to all the land. Some people do, some people don't. There's a large deer population in the province, so you need to fence that piece of property so the deer don't feast on your <laughs> your beautiful new young trees. You also need to buy the trees, which depending on whether you purchase them from a nursery or whether you do them yourself, you know, you're probably paying anywhere between 10 and $15 a tree and you're probably putting anywhere between uh, 1,200 to 1,500 trees per acre. And then you've also got a trellis system, kind of like a winery is how I explain it, 
where you're tying your trees to a trellis system to make sure they're properly supported. So if you're adding that all together, it can add up pretty quick. You can certainly spend twenty-five dollars to $35,000 an acre setting up an orchard. Ken really piqued my interest. As an outsider to the apple industry, I didn't know that setting up an orchard comes with so much overhead expense up front in addition to the cost of land. You're going to learn that it's no small undertaking to get into the apple business in this episode. In Ken's case, it's even more interesting to know that it was a late career move. Okay, we got to rewind a bit here because I got ahead of us. Uh, Ken, you didn't start out in the apple business. You had a career actually somewhere else. So you worked at McCain's for a long time. Yes. Yeah. I was just shy of 25 years with McCain Foods. Yeah. Well, I grew up in the East Coast here. I grew up in a small town called Shidiac, New Brunswick. I actually worked in the seafood industry. My my dad uh, did that his whole life and his whole career. And I did that growing up. So people had summer jobs. I worked at usually a fish plant doing uh, lobster. Shidiac is the lobster capital of the world. So we've got a large uh, uh, seafood and lobster industry in this region. Is that a self-declared statement? Does the neighbor town say they're the, the lobster capital? Is that a bit of a competition? There was actually a big competition last year. And uh, I think Shidiac actually uh, won the the lobster capital of the world. <laughs> oh, well, there's got to be a trophy with that. Yeah, yeah. There's a big, huge lobster actually in Shediac, a big uh, monument there. So Ken grew up around lobster fisheries, which is likely what most of you would have guessed considering that he's from New Brunswick. I also learned that Ken went to University of Halifax and got a Bachelor of Commerce in Marketing and HR. He then gets a job at a university with McCain Foods in Florenceville, New Brunswick, Fast forward a few years, and pretty soon he's running Long Wing Foods, a former division of McCain's. So after a long and accomplished career, you're probably wondering, why does he leave Long Wing and come back to New Brunswick and start growing apples? Let's find out. In 2013, uh, the business got sold. I kind of got caught up in the sale. I ended up having an opportunity to move back home in Moncton, and my parents still live in Shediac, so it's very close. And I worked for Cavendish Farms, which was another French fry company, uh, and worked there for three years until I started deciding that I wanted to work for myself. Ken had an itch to become an entrepreneur and get out on his own. He tells me he looked into several different franchise restaurants and even into real estate holdings. Nothing really seemed to be a good fit. Then this opportunity fell in his lap and he couldn't resist. This opportunity came up to buy... It's called Williams Orchard, and uh, I bought that in April of 2016. And then shortly after that, was approached by who are eventually became my partners to buy a second orchard called uh, La Fleur du Pommier. And between those two orchards, we probably have 75 acres of orchards and uh, grow in excess of probably uh, 3,000 bins of apples. Okay, so what's a bin? Can you paint a picture for me what a bin is? Yeah, a bin usually has anywhere between 18 and 20 bushels, and a bushel weighs 40 pounds, so you've got 700 to 750 pounds a bin. Okay. All right, now we're getting somewhere, so that's that paints a good picture. <laughs> that's a lot of apples, actually. Um, how would that stack up in terms of size relative to your peer group in the apple business? Like, is, is 75 acres of, of active orchard a big footprint? In New Brunswick terms, it's there was about 500 acres. It's now up to about 750. So it would be 10% of the acreage in the province. Oh, yeah. So that's a, obviously a sizable footprint. So you would yeah. bring 
all the challenges that any big agribusiness or farm would have, labor and marketing and all of that. So yeah, for sure. So you could have you could have been anything you wanted. You're I'll say going on to phase two in your career where you said I'm going to get off of that corporate uh, path at McCain. I'm going to go into farming. Why apples? Like you could have been anything. When I was looking to purchase a business, I had a list of criteria that I was looking for, something that I could feel good about working in every day and selling. Like I wanted the products to have a a positive halo and a healthy halo around them. I wanted flexibility in my personal life. And I know a lot of people kind of scoff and laugh at that because they're saying, you know, well, you're, you're in farming. It's, it's very labor intensive and it is, but you don't mind it so much when you're doing it for yourself. I think you got to have a lot of respect for a guy like this who takes a giant leap into an industry that was relatively new to him. The move seemed to check a lot of boxes for Ken in terms of what he wanted in his next career. But as many of you listening understand, starting a new agribusiness can be incredibly daunting. I was actually very curious about how did he navigate his transition into the new career? So you and your wife in 2016 say, yeah, we're up for this life challenge. Did you buy into a turnkey operation or yes. did you have a framework that you had to then spend your first days getting going? No, it was pretty much turnkey. Like most of the apples that are grown in the region are uh, sent to a pack house uh, locally here. That's a central pack house. And, and Belleville Orchards tends to pack a lot of the apples for the region here. So there was an agreement with them that they would continue buying the apples. And, you know, it was, it was fairly turnkey. And I had a lot of uh, experience turning businesses around. So I felt like maybe I could get a little more out of the business. And then, like I said... I've done a bunch of acquisitions for McCain and divestitures for McCain. And uh, another orchard was looking to transition it sort of within the family with another player. But the sellers really didn't know how to go about kind of uh, evaluating what it was worth. And the buyers didn't know what it was worth. So I approached them and said, I'll partner with you guys and I'll help broker the deal. And that's what ended up happening. So then in July 2017, we ended up buying La Fleur du Pommier from four owners. And there's myself and two other partners that that uh, are involved in that business as well. So it sounds to me like a similar experience that everybody has in terms of the expansion question. And maybe I'm not understanding what was the catalyst to pull the trigger? Was it the idea you, you had economies of scale you were chasing? Was it just an opportunity buy? Was there something else driving your decision to buy that second farm? It was a little of both. The opportunity and they had a little bit more of what I'd call newer orchards, like trellised orchards. And they also had some storage facility. So they have some CAs, some uh, control atmosphere storage there that they had. I, I also have that at Williams Orchard, but I just felt like we could share equipment. And and the farms are are quite close. They're on uh, either side of the Skidook River. So it's only, you know, an eight-minute drive between farms. So it kind of made sense when you kind of looked at all that together. So... Did you have a business plan around that expansion move? Yeah, we did. We, 
I mean, we, we use, uh, and look, I, um, I don't want to plug FCC or anything like that, but oh, it's we, okay to do that on our podcast. <laughs> we were working with FCC and, uh, in fact, you know, talking about my first purchase, I was actually working with the bank more than FCC and then the bank kind of changed one week out the parameters. They wanted more of a down payment. So I ended up. I, I really enjoy working with FCC. I find them flexible. I find them uh, easy to deal with. So we were working with them. We gave them a business plan in terms of what we wanted to do at, at uh, La Fleur du Pommier to, again, improve that business. Not that it wasn't profitable, but we felt either of these businesses, we want to grow more apples and we want to grow specifically more Honeycrisp apples to supply the industry uh, so, you know, we put together a plan in terms of how we could do that and how we would improve um, the financials so we could borrow to kind of fund our expansion. So I find a lot of people get intimidated by the business plan piece. You know, I've every type of farmer has a different interest in how comprehensive to a business plan. Some would rather be doing the agronomy on the farm or the marketing. And I don't. I guess can you walk us through what what the business plan looked like for you? Maybe how big it was and the key chapters inside of it, or things that you thought would create a compelling vision for your plan. The business plans start out with the financials. So we had historical financials and we put together a five-year pro forma in terms of what we felt we could do with the business. Some of the businesses we simplified and actually stopped doing certain activities. In my business experience, sometimes it's as important to remove things from the business as it is to start something new in the business. The nice part about all this is that both these uh, farms had good record keeping. So you could really delve in and see where things were being sold and where they were making and not making money. You know, I, I made changes relatively quickly to uh, the Williams Orchard and we stopped doing certain activities. And I really focus that business on being a grower and selling my fruit to uh, the packer. And we we have a store that's on the farm that we sell. And that store was open from, call it, early August till April, May. We stopped doing that because we didn't sell enough fruit after the season for it to warrant being open. So we cut that way back. So it really simplified that business and got a lot of the labor costs uh, out of the business that wasn't creating value. Ken's only been in the Apple business since 2016. But if you listen to him, it's pretty obvious he's no stranger to maximizing business and productivity. You can hear strategic thinking as he explains every decision. You can expect that after decades of experience working in a big business like McCain Foods, clearly he's got a skill set here that's transferable. So I figured here's an opportunity for us to learn from him. I want to just make sure I understand this right, because I've I've seen this lots of times, even done it myself, where when I look at the, the P&L statement and I'm looking at all my expenses, say, well, I'll just cut the big ones or I'll trim this. And 
there's always unintended consequences. And I'm kind of curious, sir, if you have advice on how do I know which ones I can cut safely? You know, going into a reasonably new business, something I sort of understand. Like, how did you wrestle that down so that you didn't cut all the things that were going to haunt you two years from now? Well, what we did was we categorized our sales. So we don't just lump everything into Apple sales. We would have store sales, we'd have UPIC sales, and we'd have commercial sales. Some expenses you can't kind of uh, segregate that way, but certainly the labor that was related to the store went towards the store labor. And so I could quickly create P&Ls where I could see where we were making and we, where we weren't making money. I'll give you an example. One of the places that was an important sales venue for us was we were at the farmer's markets. You know, we had a large sales number. We would go to two markets every Saturday. And when you start analyzing the costs around getting ready for that, the trucks, the labor to be at the market, you know, just the time and all that, you could kind of quickly see that we weren't making much money. (laughs) So why are we doing this? So we decided to concentrate more on our store and we put an emphasis on improving the store and selling more products out of the store and, and, you know, using Facebook and Instagram to kind of market that store and that we're local and especially with the pandemic. Uh, we saw a huge uptick in the store sales and we certainly had a loss of at not being at the market. But what happened was we didn't have all the expenses related to the market. So it actually improved our financial uh, position. Maybe the other piece of this question, I'm curious. So what about when you double down and invest more, you know, the spend a dollar to make two, did you do some of that in this, this journey? Not, not really. Like where we see the step change in this industry that's available is in growing the right varieties. So, you know, everybody knows about Honeycrisp apples. Well, we are focusing to plant more Honeycrisp volume because that's the apple right now that is number one, we've got a region where we can grow some of the best quality Honeycrisp in the world. And number two, we have access to markets that have high demand for that fruit. So we felt like we needed to invest in growing more fruit and that's how we would grow this business and improve this business. So it's funny when you say Honeycrisp because where I live in in Regina, Honeycrisp is like the Tesla of apples. We we know they're super awesome, but they're also hard to get. So what's the other apple that's dominating in your region? And if Honeycrisp is growing in share, what else are people growing? Well, it's predominantly a a, a Macintosh and a Cortland region. And more and more people tend to grow Honeycrisp, Ambrosia, Gala are three really popular apples uh, that are starting to to gain a lot of traction in the region. You know, for for me, when I looked at it, it made sense because the cost parameters around whether you grow Honeycrisp or whether you grow Max are the same. You still have to have your, your fertilizer program and you still have to have your spray program. 
You still got to pick the fruit. So those costs are very similar. What's not similar is a premium because sometimes it can be two to three times uh, of a premium on Honeycrisp that it is on Macintosh. So it makes sense to grow more of that variety. So when Ken explains it this way, it's really a no-brainer for him to grow Honeycrisp apples if the cost of growing them is comparable to a less profitable apple. This almost sounded too good to be true. There had to be other factors to consider. So you're you're letting economics drive your variety choice. I, I, like I think anybody in dryland farming would would aspire to some of that, but there's also agronomic factors. Um, can you convert an entire orchard to Honeycrisp and just chase the margin, or are there other conflicting factors that get in your way? No, I mean, I wouldn't say you can convert. You could plant a new orchard. So I've got a strategy where I'm trying to convert at least 5% of my acre every year to a new orchard. And so it might take a few more years. I may not. I may plant year one, take a year off and plant year two. So I'm tending to convert or add more Honeycrisp to improve my mix. Uh, you know, there's products that you make more margin than others. It's like anything, you know, the soda industry is that way. Uh, they make more margin on certain products than other products. So you've got to play with mix and you try and improve, you know, your margin by selling more valuable uh, varieties. That's not to say I don't manage my costs either. I'm always trying to improve my cost as well. Yeah, and I, to your philosophy about managing the numbers, that that part's got to yeah. kind of thread really nice, which takes me to your comment about you put a performa together as part of your business plan. What are we, year six into this journey? How are you tracking on your performa? Uh, well, <laughs> I'd say the, the, the frost that we had in 2018 kind of put a hitch into that. I think every every other region as well saw in 2018 we had a a frost here that hit us pretty hard. So we lost probably 75 to 80 percent of our crop that year. And then you know there's kind of a hangover effect of that. 2019 was a little light as well, and we're starting to kind of dig out of that. I adjusted uh, as much as I could. To that, so I would say my top line maybe was not on target, but my bottom line stayed pretty close to target. So it sounds to me like the pieces you can't control, which would say be the weather, and I think a lot of our listeners can relate to that. Um, you got to kind of adjust course, but the things you can control, it appears you've been relentless on making sure the cost side has been well managed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When I bought this, I really didn't know anything about the apple industry i didn't know how much it cost in labor to pick i didn't know how much it cost to do my spray program or insurance or you know all the other uh, cost parameters that you have well i've been relentless in collecting data from certainly my firms but also anybody else that's willing to give me data uh, in terms of creating kind of a, a low and a high rate to do these activities. So I have things broken down in terms of picking. My first year, it cost me $60 a bin to pick my apples. Well, I've been relentlessly trying to work at lowering that cost in terms of, you know, how I manage the crews, who I use. And, uh, you know, we've been getting that down every year. 
After the break, Ken's going to walk us through some of his approaches to labor inefficiencies, and he has some really valuable lessons to share on the importance of having a good grasp on your cash flow and having access to strong data. I promise you, there's going to be lots to learn. When I ran Wong Wing, I certainly wasn't doing bookkeeping. And that's always been, that's always the issue, whether you working in the business or working on the business. I try and keep myself working on the business, not necessarily working in the business. Has all this talk about business plans got you thinking you've got some work to do? I know we weren't able to take a deep dive into the podcast today on all the moving parts around a business plan. But if you're looking for more resources, go to fcc.ca and check out our knowledge tab find some more help and support to help you develop your own business plan. The FCC Knowledge Podcast is brought to you by AgExpert, farm management software designed for Canadian agriculture. Learn more at agexpert.ca. How much would the gross revenue per acre swing like I appreciate you have frost and it would drive huge demand, but I don't. I have no perspective on what even gross revenue looks like on an acre basis. Yeah, so if you're growing traditional varieties, you're probably looking at a gross revenue of fifteen to twenty thousand dollars an acre, and if you're growing high end varieties like Honeycrisp, you could get anywhere between thirty five thousand dollars an acre, forty thousand dollars an acre gross. And when I say gross, that's gross from the packer. There's also packing costs that come out of that. But yeah, it, it can vary quite dramatically. So in your P&L sheet then, if you laser in on labor, and it sounds like you've broken it out by categories, you would, I'll call it the harvest labor, you've got the pruning labor. Where's the other big labor space? For me, it's uh, the harvest labor and the pruning labor. And I do some of the work myself too, and I, I pay myself as well. So there's, call it management labor in there. After that, really, you're into your chemical programs, your packing costs are are a big cost as well. And then it's labor around the UPIC and the the store that's, that's after that. So how many staff would you have on at peak season? Uh, on one farm, we probably have uh, pickers, probably 25 to 30, and we tend to put them in crews of 8 to 10. On the Williams Orchard, I prob- I used to have 25. I'm down to about uh, 10 people now. Okay, so if I got my math right here, you have about 35 staff at peak season then? Maybe 40? Yeah, yeah. So you came out of McCain's, you had, you had, had big, robust human resource kits <laughs> yeah. and packages and rules. How did that translate yeah. to your farm? Well, it, it, it was a, an adjustment. I, I'd say the biggest thing for me was uh, when you work in these large organizations, you kind of take for granted the structure that's in place because it's always been there and you, you don't really think about it, the accounting, the bookkeeping, you know, all the the HR, the the IT, like if you have a problem, you just call the IT department and it's fixed. With these smaller entrepreneurial, whether it's a farm or, or, or any other business, 
you don't have that luxury. So you have to either outsource it or try and do it yourself. Like we do our own bookkeeping. We do monthly P&Ls. So we try and be disciplined that way around it. But it certainly requires a lot more from an input standpoint. <laughs> when I ran Wong Wing, I certainly wasn't doing bookkeeping. <laughs> and that's always been, that's always the issue, whether you, you know, working in the business or working on the business. I try and keep myself working on the business, not necessarily working in the business. So that takes a lot of discipline. I remember, I don't know, early in my career, maybe my first manager job where um, somebody said, if someone else can do something 70% as good as you, you should delegate it away. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess I'm curious, I mean, you're, you got the in the business versus on the business philosophies. How do you keep pulling yourself back? Because it's got to be super easy to get dragged into the day-to-day -day grind of moving the ladder. It is. And, and I, find, uh, I find what I tend to do is not listen to the people talking about it. So I try and work on the business. I'll get on a tractor and do a spray or I'll mow grass or things like that. I'm not saying I never do that, but I get more value out of myself looking at I don't know whether it's looking at government programs to help fund uh, expansion or understanding where my costs are increasing so that I can make informed decisions. I find I get more value out of myself doing that because you can keep busy. There's lots to do on, a, on the farm. I can go and I can tie trees and I can thin and I can prune, but I try to stay away from it. If you've been following the FCC podcast, you might remember one of our past guests, Ben Campbell in season one. He's got a dollar amount in mind that he's willing to pay someone else to do certain jobs so that he can go focus on other parts of the business. It seems Ken is on a similar page, but he also considers his own work satisfaction in his process. You know, whatever you put into your business, you get out of it. So... I want to be successful, so I can't leave everything up to somebody else. I'm trying to make these these farms as successful as possible and grow them, and I need to have time to do that. I still do a little bit of consulting on the side here and there, but to be honest with you, I enjoy working on what I own more than what somebody else owns. Uh, maybe that's the formula right there is that it's okay to not yeah. make 500 bucks an hour doing something if what you really love is fills your bucket yeah, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't to be clear it wouldn't be 500 bucks an hour but well you, know. I, you should aim higher then you got to at least try to shoot for the <laughs> shoot for the moon but it to to the point of what you're saying i think is that it is your business there's a sense of pride with that and it's okay to not make every decision about the money but if you're not attuned to what your numbers are and your costs are yeah you're kind of operating rudderless yeah. yeah. So let's go back to kind of when you first got started. If you look back, what's the biggest learning you've had or the thing that you thought to be true that wasn't once you got into the business? I'd say for me, the, the biggest thing... Coming from the corporate world, I understood but didn't have to deal with it 
in a finite way was cash flow. I was the president and chief operating officer for a couple of divisions for McCain in Montreal. Um, we talked about cash flow, but we were profitable. The business had been running for a long time. We were actually always looking for projects to, you know, capital projects where we could improve the business because those companies have cash that they want to use and invest and grow their business. So you you knew about cash flow, but you didn't maybe fully understand it. What happens when you become an entrepreneur and you own your own business, you quickly kind of realize that cash flow is one of the key components that you got to manage closely. And the other thing I would say was just taking for granted all the systems and having access to really good data, you know, on a consistent basis, sales reports and market shares and things like that, that these large companies have access to, that as a smaller company, unless you're keeping really, really good and detailed reporting, it's hard to get to. Yeah, I think that's a that's going to be a common problem for lots of our listeners. So what advice do you have for people in that space? Or where do I go to answer some of those questions about just what you're talking about, all that data you used to get at the corporation, but now you got to find it on your own? Well, you, you, if you're talking about your own internal finances, it starts with good bookkeeping and detailed data entry, you know, in whatever system you're using, it's okay to spend, you know, a day a week or a day and a half a week to be sitting and inputting your data or having someone to input the data. It's, it's actually important where, you know, Probably a lot of people don't look at it that way. They're like, oh, well, why are you spending so much time in the office? You're not out here helping to prune. But for me, it's one of the keys. Uh, so I spend as much time as I can on that. And if you can afford it, if the businesses are large enough, you hire a full-time bookkeeper or a full-time accountant to kind of help you uh, make you know, those inputs so you can make informed decisions going forward. Ken emphasizes again and again how important good record keeping is. That's something that we've heard in season one and we hear it episode in and episode out. It probably isn't a bad time to remind everyone that our season two sponsor is FCC Ag Expert. If you're looking for a great farm management software, head over to agexpert.ca to learn more about Ag Expert field and Ag Expert accounting. Do you put that same investment into your self-learning or self-improvement? You know, if you said a day week, a month that you're doing data entry, what's it like on the learning side and how have you addressed that? I would say I took, I took a longer approach to understanding uh, the Apple industry. So like I said, I bought first orchard in 16, the second orchard in 2017. We traveled extensively with the IFTA, which is the International Fruit Tree Association. So We've been to Washington State, which is probably the largest growing region for apples in North America and maybe even globally. We've been to New Zealand uh, with the IFTA on a two and a half week uh, apple tour. Uh, we've been to Italy and France and Germany to look at different equipment. And we've been to New York is, a, is another large uh, region. Uh, we consistently are conversing with our 
counterparts in Nova Scotia to kind of make sure that we're sharing best practices. And I always say, like, it's not necessarily in like a university learning type environment, but what you're doing is if you can take one of those trips and get one key nugget of information, it pays for that trip. The other thing is having mentors. I'm new to the industry, so I immediately aligned myself with who I thought was one of the better growers in the region. And I work with them really closely. Like uh, I work there two days a week helping them out. So they lean on me for business advice and I kind of lean on them for Apple and agronomy advice because I'm not an agronomist by any means. You know, it sounds like you, you're subscribing to a bit of my philosophy about diversity of thought and all that travel and seeing other things just stretches your brain to where you can steal the best ideas and make them your own. So yeah, maybe I'll get to my last question here, which is one of my favorite ones. And I'll say, don't go back to just when you started Apple's, but maybe all the way back to your career. And what advice would you give your 20 year old self? Geez, that's a, that's a, an interesting question. I, I would say for my 20 year old self is to be open to new ideas because when you're when you're younger, you tend to want to think you you know everything and you don't for sure you don't. So learn as much as you can. Like I, I always enjoy learning and I try to learn whether I'm traveling or whether I'm uh, working on a project. There's always things to learn about. So, uh, you know, learning is a lifelong endeavor and you, you should try and do that at all times. I really enjoyed working in the marketing space and running those companies for, for McCain Cavendish. So I did that for 25 years. It led me to this and I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. So find something you enjoy and, and, you know, life's too short to be miserable, uh, working a job and not enjoying what you're doing. Oh, I think that's great advice to wrap the podcast up. Thanks Ken for your insights as well. And, uh, yeah, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. I appreciate you giving your time. I think I think we've got lots of great content in there and some actionable items for some of our listeners. So I appreciate it. I appreciate the time you've given me. My conversation with Ken was incredibly informative, and I don't think you can listen to him and not get inspired about his business management practices. He seemed to know every detail about his cost structure associated with running the orchard. He gave me some really valuable insights. So what did I take away from today? Number one, data management is always king. Ken is constantly tracking his financing and monitoring the cost of each specific revenue generator. It helps him make better informed decisions. So, for example, he stopped selling at the farmer's market because it just didn't give him enough value, even though it was traditionally how the business operated. Good data can help you make difficult but necessary business decisions. Number two, it's important to balance working in your business versus working on your business. And I'm sure, like me, those of you listening get a lot of joy out of working in the farmyard and getting your hands dirty. But sometimes spending that time in the office can be just the thing you need to drive your business growth and your success. So spending your time analyzing your data and making important decisions can help keep your business growing. It also gives you examples of where you could pay someone else to do labor-related tasks 
to give you more time to work on your business. Don't be afraid to hire out or delegate to others when it makes sense. Number three, money is an important factor in decision-making, but so is overall career satisfaction. So as you can imagine, a guy like Ken, who has a long, prosperous career in the food industry, exploring new careers can be kind of intimidating. Before buying the orchard, Ken also explored several other entrepreneurial opportunities. But one of the main things he was looking for is pride and joy in his work. The challenge of jumping into the apple growing industry was the right fit for Ken, even if it wasn't necessarily the most obvious choice based on his past career. Sometimes at the end of the day, working for yourself in your business, something you enjoy, can be reward enough. And lastly, having a plan is most important. You could hear the strategic thought that went into many of Ken's decisions as you described them. He put those thoughts down on paper in a business plan. It wasn't absolutely the only part of his success, but it was a big element in terms of how he was able to take his five years in the Apple industry, reinvent his business, and really show up and move things forward. It was all anchored in a good plan. Well, that's it for today, folks. I hope you really enjoyed our show. And if you did, there's a lot more coming in season two. Remember, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like and subscribe and never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time. This podcast has been brought to you by AgExpert, a farm management software designed for Canadian agriculture. Learn more at agexpert.ca. The FCC Knowledge Podcast is a Farm Credit Canada production produced in collaboration with Roman Empire Studios. Audio editing and mixing performed by David Roman of Roman Empire Studios in Regina, Saskatchewan.